0: Welcome back. It's Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and this week I talk with Nick Fogel of Churnkey about a number of things, but one interesting point we touch on in this conversation is about the difference between bootstrapping B2C and bootstrapping a B2B company. It's something we've talked quite a bit about on this show, and I think you'll enjoy that part of our conversation and hopefully the entire conversation that I have with Nick today. But before we dive into that, I want to let you know MicroConf Remote is happening today when this episode comes out. It's happening today, tomorrow, and the day after. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, May 3rd through 5th. Tickets are still available. We are talking all things money, so we're covering sales and personal finance and pricing and alternative sources of funding. And we do it for 90 minutes over three days to make it easy on your schedule. We also have this amazing new platform that is like, it's like a first-person walkthrough environment. You just got to go, you got to go to microconfremote.com and there is a video you can play there to check it out because if you haven't seen a remote event and I bet you have not seen one on a platform like this, you should really check this out because producer Xander is pulling out all the stops on this one and I'm super excited to be hosting that this week. So if you haven't got your ticket already, head to microconfremote.com if you just want to opt instead to just get the videos, we do have a video only price for that as well. So microconfremote.com if you're interested and with that, let's dive into my conversation with Nick Fogel of Churn key
1: Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's kind of a dream. I've been a long time listener, so it's a little surreal being on.
0: That's It's super cool. And you know, that happens now and again with folks in MicroConf or, or Tiny Seed and... It's always nice to have listeners on because you know the show format, you kind of know how it's going to go, you know, you know, you know, let's be pretty tactical, you know, let's be entertaining, let's tell all the all the good points, not the good points, but the the most entertaining parts of the story and inspiration, right? So people can walk away with actionable things. And I think in that respect, like, we will dig into your story of building and growing Churn Key, touch a little bit on a prior business that you built, but I want to kick this off with a question, a super tactical question, because churn key is personalized cancel flows for a healthier subscription business. I imagine you see you know a lot of do's and don'ts within churn as you have you know views across a lot of subscription businesses. So are, are there one or two things that like people should really be
1: doing to think about reducing their own churn? The first thing I'd suggest is that you you need to figure out why people are canceling. If you don't have some form or some way of getting feedback for why your users are actually leaving, That's your number one priority. Then, once you start to collect data and you know why people are leaving, you can offer them things that will entice them to stay. It's important to remember that not everybody who leaves wants to leave for good. Uh, In some situations, a pause might be the best thing you can give them and they'll come back and they'll reactivate within a few months and that's revenue that that you save long-term. I often like to tell uh, businesses that it's a lot easier to offer somebody a pause or offer them a discount then going through the whole customer acquisition cost lifecycle again and having, you know, all the excess spending that that's going to involve.
0: Have, have there ever, I mean, I, I like these suggestions and these are things that we built by hand, you know, in Drip. I built these by hand in Hittail as well. There were some sometimes like I found, we had a form when you cancel that says, can you give us a reason? And we required at least five characters. And so people would put ASDF, ASDF and submit it and then, we switched to not have that and then I would have an automate. instead I had an automated email that went out like five minutes after they canceled that was just like, hey, I'm the founder, would love it if you, you know, could write a quick reply. That for us at that point in time in the stage of our product got us a higher rate, you know, a higher response rate of reasons basically. But what, what have you seen? Like, Is it pretty common in your experience that a lot of people won't fill that out and say, this is why I'm canceling? Or are there way, even ways to entice them to do that?
1: If you create a really simple survey that's like literally bubbling the answer, that's probably the best way. The freeform feedback field is kind of a recipe for depression. Like, and as a founder, like you got to grow some thick skin and realize that you're gonna have some people that are just irate, they're angry, and they're gonna, you know, tell you everything that's wrong. But overall, you have to separate yourself from the business. And that's something that we see a lot with founders, that they're um, it's like you get so focused on growth. You don't want to know why people are breaking up with you, right? Like you just, it's happening and you're like, I'm going to overcome that with growth. It's just, you know, a fact of life. Well, it, It's not really because a lot of those people who are leaving, there's a reason they're leaving and you might be able to counter that reason with the alternative to make them stay.
0: And, you know, you mentioned having a pause, having a discount. Are there other alternatives that, that you've seen work?
1: Yeah, it depends on the business. In some situations, there might be a product that has a little higher uh, technical learning curve. So in that situation, one thing I suggest people use is a um, integration with your support chat. So if somebody selects a reason that says I'm having technical issues, then you can automatically with turnkey, you can automatically trigger intercom or uh, drift or whatever your chat solution is to pop up and have a customer support person right there to just help this person along. Another alternative is to get them on a better plan. So if they say it's too expensive, the discounts work really, really well people tend to be price sensitive, particularly right now, and are getting better about checking in on their subscription spending every month. So you have to be proactive as a business and think about what's going to entice these users who are budget sensitive to stay. And discounts can work. Uh, sending them to a different pricing plan can also work based on the usage. And um, Turnkey allows you to segment your different user groups. So if somebody's on the top plan, you can move them to the, the lower plan. So all of those things work. There are there are quite a lot of different options though. Some people even have uh, will alert somebody on their team to give you a call. You mentioned the emails and I want to touch on that because that's something that we tried, like the immediate reactivation emails. And we would, with Wave, our previous business, we worked so hard to craft these reactivation emails that would be like, we're so sorry you're leaving. It would be like a personal handcrafted message and it would have like a very, very lucrative discount that says, hey, if you want to come back, Here's 100% off for two months. Just share your feedback. And we got like maybe one out of 30 people that left would actually fill that thing out. So I, I haven't seen as much success with that. Again, it does depend on the business, but those are just some some different angles of attack.
0: Right, those can be done with code. Like you could get in and hack JavaScript or hack your server-side stuff, or you can use a tool. You know, there's Turnkey and there's obviously, you know, other competitors in the this, in this space that can do similar things. But I should clarify that the email we were sending was not a reactivation email. It was just a, why did you cancel email?
1: Oh, I That's see. all
0: I was trying to find out. And then if we would do reactivation, we would do it later. So I was just trying to get data. It was like customer development type stuff of like, why is everyone churning, you know, or what can we do to improve the
1: product? So. That, and the ASDF thing is something we see and our customers ask us all the time, like, what can I do so that people actually... Answer and it's really a question of volume. Like some people are busy, they're like mad that the subscription is still billing. They just want to get out as quickly as possible. That's fine. You know let them go. And and if they don't take any of your other offers and they're gonna skip out on the feedback, that's okay. But you should be it, it's a numbers game like anything else. And if you've got a hundred people to cancel, a large majority are gonna fill that out.
0: And so churnkey's been around about a year. You launched it February of 2021, but really churnkey. Kind of stemmed out in a very similar story to the way that Drips kind of spawned out of Hittail, a need we had internally of collecting emails on every page. We started building an internal tool. That's what happened with you with Wave. You've mentioned Wave already. Would you like to tell people like what Wave is? And you exited that business, I believe, in 2020. And so talk us briefly through that. And we'll kind of, I'm curious most about the evolution of moving from Wave, deciding to sell it, and kind of doubling down and going all in on churnkey.
1: Yeah. We, we sold it in um, March of 2021. We finalized that deal. It's funny, 2020, all the purchasers went home because we were we were thinking about it. We talked to brokers and all this stuff. And to start at the beginning, my co-founder, Baird Hall, and myself, we wanted to start a startup. Our wives actually introduced us. We were both going at it alone on different things. And we decided to create a community for different audio groups centered around sports teams. It was called Utah Sports. We were shortly uh, sent a cease and desist letter for uh Trademark infringements, which uh, in a prior life, I was an attorney, so um, I should have known and to check the trademarks. But anyway, we rebranded to Wave and it quickly became apparent after a year grinding on this thing that people weren't going to pay for it. It was it was kind of like maybe before audio was as popular. It would have been like a precursor to Clubhouse. I think that's a good way to um, describe it. But one thing that's interesting about bootstrapping and staying in an industry and being close to the different problems that an industry is facing is you begin to find problems. And my advice to a lot of people who are indie hackers or bootstrappers is just stick with it, look for problems. Eventually, one will present itself and, you know, and looking back, it can seem lucky, but over time, you're gonna increase your surface area and have some home runs. And with this product, it was failing. We weren't able to get anybody to, to pay us for these communities. And as kind of a, a last ditch effort, I um, found an old GitHub repo that WNYC made that allowed you to turn audio into video. Got a little IP address on uh, EC2 instance and had this as an internal tool. Our existing users loved the videos that were created, and they said, "Hey, we don't really care about this community thing, but can we pay you to use that? I'll pay you ten dollars to do it." And uh, over the course of three or four months, we realized, "All right, like this is a this is the thing." And so we reincorporated and launched this new Wave product, and we grew pretty slowly at first, and. Over time, podcasting continued to grow as an industry. And these things shared very well. People would see the little wave watermark and they'd come subscribe and uh, we kept building out features and we hit a problem. The problem was churn. So with podcasters and any type of prosumer really, a a prosumer would be somebody that um, is like a hobbyist, different tools like social media scheduling apps, anything that can help you be a creator. These things all kind of fit that prosumer market churn is very high because people will try it something for a few months and either due to the cost or just lack of time to work on it they'll leave. And with wave we were doing about 20,000 in monthly recurring revenue and we were looking at our churn, we were looking at our growth and we realized this business is going to hit a churn ceiling at like 25 or 30,000. So it was pretty demoralizing to realize that. We had a sense of why customers were leaving, but we didn't really know. So this is, it sounds silly now, but we waited really long to implement any kind of user feedback when people were leaving. This was about 18 months after we started this new business and we just started requiring some customer feedback. A lot of people would just, you know, do the ASDF thing. But over time, we realized there were two things very common. People wanted to take a break from podcasting because it's seasonal or people had budgetary reasons. We'd been optimizing for features and technical debt and fixing bugs. We'd spent so much money and time working on those things, but it's not why our customers were leaving. Most of our revenue problems were around these two other issues. So we started working on a few things internally that would help us with this. The first was uh, the ability to pause if somebody needed to pause. That worked pretty well. We actually hired a churn <laughs> consulting agency too at this time and uh, said, hey, can you help us improve our turn further? And uh, it, it's hard to say if the big agency was able to move the needle much. What was clear is that this automation was working very well, enough to dedicate more engineering time into understanding the data and experimenting with different ways to retain more people. I'll stop right here if there are any questions or...
0: Well, I think it's... Relatively predictable, at least if folks have listened to any episodes of this show, when I hear consumers or prosumers, I think, yep, low price point, high churn. The moment I look at Wave, which is at, it's co, and your monthly pricing, you, there's a free plan, it's for the aspiring creator. It's funny, and it's then it's like thirteen dollars a month, twenty dollars a month, thirty-three dollars a month. I would assume, yeah, you're gonna have really high. You're gonna have eight to eight to twelve percent monthly churn probably, and it took, I bet your higher plans probably churned a little lower. You know, there's all these patterns that you see. So that this is not unexpected, I think, with a with a business like that. But it still sounds like you had built something people wanted, which is which is kind of cool. And we have had folks on this show, Christopher Gimmer with Snappa.com, who you know is into seven figures with a similarly priced pro. Consumer aim and then there's Veed.io. We had Saba speak up MicroConf Europe a couple months ago. Yeah, you know, they also have some lower price plans, but they have such enormous volume, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uniques a month. And that's how you outrun, that's how you outrun that kind of churn, right? But it sounds like, yeah, you were hitting something that's I would say would not be unexpected, but it still can be really hard on a business,
1: right? And people don't talk about it. Uh, as founders, it's demoralizing when people leave. It's hard not to take it personally because you you put so much time and energy in your business. So it can be something that you just put off and you procrastinate. You kind of stick your head in the sand. And it's important to separate that and just say like it's not personal. Like it's business. They're leaving. They have a reason for it. Yeah. So we continued working on this prototype, what would become ChurnKey, and our retention got better and better and better. We were saving more users a month and. We we're able to crush through that plateau at 30,000, which was like the former growth ceiling. And we got to 50. And then we said, all right. And I'm a pessimist financially. I'm always like, oh, like, it's over. Like, you know, we've we've peaked. And then we would crush through it because we'd find a uh, revenue would increase, like our, our top line growth would increase and we would cut churn a little bit more. Churn is such a game of margins. So if you decrease churn by 0.1%, that unlocks like so much more MRR. It's the mathematics can hurt your head if you're not used to thinking in compounding terms. It, it really is. So it's so worth it just to. And, and once we realized that, we were like, it's worth throwing all of our engineering hours into this, because if we can cut churn another two tenths of a, of a percent, I mean, the sky's the limit. And, you know, eventually we got wave well over one hundred thousand a month. Part of that was just higher growth and the creator movement continuing to go strong. And a big part of that was being able to reduce churn. It sounds like you have
0: a great business. I mean, I I believe you grew to 150k MRR at a certain point, approaching two million ARR, and then you sold it. Why Why would you sell a business that's so amazing <laughs> that you know you had worked so hard on?
1: Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard one. Um, I'm somebody that I, I'm not like a I'm not super active on social media. I'm not I was not like a core user of Wave. It was a fun problem to work on. It's fun working on those kind of technical problems, but I think. I mean, we'd been working in that podcasting space for about five years and we were also not, we weren't loving the operational role we had at Wave anymore. So how big was the team? uh, About like seven or eight, but there were only, there were only two of us that were kind of full-time on it, Barrett and myself. And we, I only went full-time the last few months of it. And we only had contractors. We didn't have any employees. So it was super lean. Like we never hired a single W-2. It was just 1099 part-time. And and that's that's also, there's some challenges in operating a business when you only have contractors because of different kind of churn. You know, the contractors leave and you got to do knowledge transfer. So yeah, there was just a lot of things that came up. And I think we were realizing we need somebody that wants to operate this business, operating it. And we were starting to get more inbounds from um, M&A. We had a broker we talked to. I had a ton of student Loan debt and some other things that I was like hoping to pay down. It was just time, yeah.
0: I mean, and I get it, right? I sold a to company too that was also growing and doing millions of dollars. You know, it, it's a similar situation. For me, mine was a lot of like, I'm concerned that I have millions and millions of dollars tied up in an illiquid asset. And that makes it tough. I think these days... I would cuz this was 2015 when I was thinking about it. These days I would think about maybe selling part of my company if I still wanted to run it and still believed in it, but it sounds like it sounds like as much as you believed in it, it wasn't that interesting to you anymore. And the operations of it makes a lot of sense. I was going to specifically bring up that idea once you said that it was all 1099 contractors of like that actually, you know, we've seen some folks kind of in the bootstrapish space try it and have it not work very well. It's like th- you get a lot of task-oriented thinkers. And so you are now the project and the owner-oriented thinker and you don't have anybody. Everything comes back to you and there's these cracks. Cortland Allen and I talked about it last week where it's like things fall through the cracks and then you're the owner and you're like, ah, I don't really want to be
1: be dealing with that. Was that part of it? That was. And, and my whole career, I'd always worked like a day job and WAVE had been like nights and weekends. Like I probably worked 60 hours a week for like, 5 or 6 years there where I was trying to like pay down student loan debt, make this make wave happen, and I didn't leave my day job until June of 2020. And a lot of that reason was like it now represents so much of my net worth. What on earth am I doing still trying to, you know, do everything? We had some contractors that we were having to pay more and more things were falling through the cracks, they weren't doing that good of work. So, yeah, I think that became a problem and we just weren't we never like planned to like. We never got super organized around the contractors. It was just very reactive. And as we grew faster and faster, it was like, okay, like this thing has a lot of potential. And, and we were all interested. We love building things, so we we're like, what else can we start? And we had worked on Turnkey, like, well, it wasn't called Turnkey yet, but we were like, this is something that everybody needs. It works so well for our business, and we really love the idea of helping other founders and businesses to be more successful. So that's kind of what took us into Turnkey.
0: Right, so switching from prosumer podcast or social media folks to like let's help other founders because that's a more interesting space for you personally. It sounds like, and you had the freedom, you know. Often you hear me talk about freedom, purpose, and relationships. It sounds like you had the freedom to do that because if you're going to sell a multi-million-dollar SaaS company, you can kind of work on whatever you want next.
1: Yeah, and I'll I will say this as just a little um, side note: when you sell something, it, you know, I've always been like, man, that lump sum, like you get the lump sum and you're just set. You go retire or something. I can sympathize with like retirees now where instead of like, uh, there's something about having passive income and the recurring nature of that, that's more comforting than a lump sum that you have to manage where you're worried about, worried about inflation. I'm worried about, you know, all the different things. What is my family's burn rate versus like my amount I've saved. And back to your point, kind of like thinking, uh, what would you do if you were going to sell another one with Trunky right now? We've talked a lot about this as a team and we've talked, we hired a new head of sales, which is super excited about. And our biggest thing to him, he's talked to, I'm sure a lot of VCs and these different companies where everybody is looking for that big liquidity event. And I said, you know, it's nice to get this liquidity event, but what's even better is that steady recurring income every month. And you have the control to lever that business up or lever it down when the time comes.
0: Yeah. I can see that both ways. I think once I've had I've had both because I, I had hit tail doing about thirty grand twenty five to thirty grand a month and it was almost all profit it was eighty percent net margin ninety percent net margin and so that was amazing but what what kind of ran out on ran out on me there was I lost interest and I also. I didn't think I could grow it into a multi million dollar business. Like, I didn't think the space was big enough. And then when I tried to autopilot it, quote unquote, like I always say, there is no such thing as autopilot. Every 12 months, every 18 months, just something Google would smack it. The competitor would come up. It would start to decline. I'd have to turn my focus to it. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't happen. So I think if you're able and willing to focus on it, like you are with Turing Key, then having a business is amazing. And you're you not so concerned now about, well, all my net worth is tied up in this thing. It's like, you already have a big you know lump sum sitting in a bank account. So that ease, that stress goes away. You know what I mean? That's, that's at least been my experience of it, is like this mental transition of, oh my gosh, this is every dollar. Everything that I've built for a decade is now tied up in this app. And I remember being like really stressed about it.
1: Yeah. Baird and I met at one point at a coffee shop. Cause the first time we had an acquisition offer, it was like, it was like a little less than a million. And it was like a year and a half after we started and we were on indie hackers, open revenue and everything. And I was like, let's do it. Let's do it. Like, this is it. This is our best offer ever. And thankfully like Baird was in a little better place than I was financially at the time. And he was like, nah, I think, I think this has still got some room to grow. And we doubled down and we were like, okay, we'll sell in 2020. And, uh, We were meeting with brokers and everything, and then March 2020, everybody went home for COVID. So we were fortunate that we delayed it and delayed it, and we're much better off because of that.
0: Because the business multiplied, in essence, during COVID, right? Because everybody started podcasts, and everybody needed It was like social media and podcasts, because we don't have any in-person events anymore. So you kind of had that COVID cut both ways in a lot of different directions, but there are certainly some companies that really benefited.
1: One last thing about that is like one thing that's become more prevalent recently is just the small individual people that are acquiring businesses with micro acquiring things. And as a founder who has a lot of like for me, I had over 200,000 a student loan debt and I had, um, you know, a small family and a lot of other obligations. When you see that money, you just get dollar signs in your eyes and you're like, all right, like, you know, let's do it. You you lose all rational capability to, to process that. Um, and I think that's becoming something that um, more founders are having to come to terms with like you've got these more liquid markets for your business to to sell it. And it's very easy to settle for something that's way less than your business would be worth in this current market. So I think that's a point of caution that um, you should never just jump on a deal, take some time, think about it, talk to, always DM me on Twitter if you ever had questions or um, there are people like Rob that are more equipped than than I am to answer that. But uh, yeah, I think that's, that's worth being wary of.
0: I like that you brought that up and called it out because it is a really good point that I don't think I've called out enough is that we see, whether through tiny seed companies, companies I'm invested in, I have almost 80 investments across those two. And almost all of them have had some type of inbound acquisition interest. They all get inbound investment interest. But what you'll find, and this is pretty well known in the M&A space, it's even called out in John Warlow's book that he released last year. Uh, That one's The Art of Selling Your Business, I believe and it's pretty well known that if an individual is emailing you from a private equity, micro private equity and they're like hey I can do this really fast and we'll just get this thing done they are trying to get a value price. They're basically trying to going to try to lowball you because it's like you know let's say you're doing 2 million a year and they're going to be like hey we'll give you 4 million or we'll give you 5 million and that is like rock bottom if your business is like bleeding out and declining that's the price right but if you actually took it to market it's a more complicated process takes more time but you can i see businesses doing 2 million a year getting 10 to 20 million if you actually get a number of people involved in kind of a bidding process basically it's more work but they're trying to do off market deals is what happens and so that's that's what you're saying right is like be really wary of that
1: yeah. And it's, the market is totally opaque. I mean, I think micro and some of the like marketplace style things are, are better for getting a sense of like, maybe this is what it could be worth. We were fortunate that we talked to a bunch of different brokers and had a good sense of like, you know, what we, we could eventually sell for. We were lucky also that we didn't have to use a broker to do the deal at the end of it. Yeah. I think it's worth, um, I mean, it, they'll take 10 or 15% cut of the deal, but it's, it's better than, you know, what you could lose if you go prematurely into something. And the, the, the quick turn around like a uh, seven day close or 30 day close, it's too good to be true. Run away, run away if somebody offers you that
0: if that's the big benefit that's usually the equivalent of seeing the billboard on the highway that's like we buy any house like cash offer for all your houses and look i'm not saying we're not saying they're shysters we're not saying they're doing things that are unethical or dishonest they are value buyers and they will make it easy and that's the benefit the, but it's the benefit is not that you get the best price for your company so know that going in that if you did spend a few months usually get multiple people involved run a process whether it's through a broker whether you know you have a quiet light there's micro acquire there's this capital if you're in this, you know, seven figures of, of ARR. Yeah, there are ways to maximize and you it's usually not the easy path that gets you the best price. It's usually you kind of got to grind it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really is. And to bring it back to to chunky and like while we built it and, and decided to make this a dedicated business, the brokers told us right away like, oh, you're going to have a really bad value multiple because your churn is This is on Wave. This was on Wave, yeah. So at the time, we didn't, Turnkey didn't exist, but it was the prototype for Turnkey within the app. And we had just built a little bit of it out. And we were just like, all right, well, we're gonna, if we wanna get what we want out of this business, we need to double down on churn. And make sure we figure out a way to solve it so that was one of the biggest motivators was just like we got to get a better value multiple if we're ever going to sell this thing and yeah if if anybody is out there that is thinking of selling their business in the future that's a big factor that acquirers are going to look at is what is your churn rate the the math is simple too like if you're looking at what could we be acquired for you just think about monthly what are you making how much more would you make if you actually got your churn handled and then you multiply that times 12 times to, to get your annual revenue and then you multiply that by your revenue multiple. It, it makes a huge difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, acquirers are usually looking at your growth rate. Uh, that's probably number one. They're looking at your churn rate because they can, are calculating when it's going to naturally plateau. They'll often look at your price point. If your price is too low, it just makes it harder to grow. But if they think there's room to expand it, that's a good thing. Yeah, there's, there's a, lot, a lot that goes into that. This week's sponsor is Trust Shoring. TrustShoring helps you find reliable pre vetted developers or software development agencies. Turn to TrustShoring if you need to build an MVP, scale your team or product, or you have issues with your current developers or code base and need guidance on your SaaS journey. TrustShoring makes software development and remote hiring easy for all kinds of founders, technical and non technical. Book a free, no commitment call with TrustShoring CEO Victor Parolnik, who I've met at many microcomps. Visit TrustShoring.com to book that call. That's trustshoring.com. I want to come back to, so you sell wave, which I've been through a few of these. I remember refreshing the bank balance and and looking at it and the feeling of overwhelm. I was actually just telling someone offline how I started, I basically started crying. Like I got all choked up because it was years in the making and it was my whole life in the making it was from the time i was 11 years old and said you know what i don't think i want to work for other people when i get older you know and this was that moment of like this is freedom this what that was the freedom line for me but i want to find out from you like do you remember what that was like do you remember looking at the bank balance when it all closed and and what what was that emotion like
1: yeah i mean it it was life changing knowing that like this and it's kind of surreal too like this actually happened it was almost so surreal that it was like, it took it a while to set in. Like it actually, it wasn't like an immediate emotional thing. It was like, oh, it happened. And then I was like, oh, hold Like it it happened. And like, you know, I, I grew up in a situation where my family's wealth was just like destroyed through bad investments. And when I think about my legacy, I think about my children, it's like, wow, like I can change my family tree through this money and being a good steward of the proceeds from that transaction. So that was the big thing that was overwhelming is thinking about the impact it has on, not just me, but my, my whole family.
0: Yeah, I remember getting choked up when I fully funded our kids' college funds. When I, pu- I pushed enough cash into those two, we did, Sherry and I did she was She was off doing calls, and I remember logging in and just saying, right in that 529, just boom, boom. And I saw the money, and I was like, yeah, my, we, did, we didn't have this growing up, and I'm so glad that I can give this to our, our kids. Even with the cost of education today, will graduate with no debt. It's an incredible feeling. Yeah, that's great. So you have this other business that you're basically, it's not a business yet. It's just a product, right? Or it's a product idea. And you're saying, all right, we're going to start turkey. We've already had a bunch of success with Wave. We know what we're doing. Surely this one will be easier. I imagine that was, you know, you could-
1: we, Yeah. Every time you say that, right? <laughs> Barry, my co-founder, started another business called Subtitle, which is similar to Wave. They just, they do subtitles. And he was like, oh yeah, like we got Wave and this one will be easy. And same thing. It took a lot longer, and churn key was a lot more different because instead of prosumer B two C style customers, we we're going B two B, and we were not prepared for the uh, the longer sales cycle because founders are busy, and the people you talk to have other priorities. Sometimes they don't prioritize churn because they want to avoid it, or sometimes they just got like a really busy product roadmap, and whatever the reason, it definitely took us a good six months to get a a handle on how different it was going to be, and that it was going to be a totally different journey building Churnkey than it was building Wave.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think B2B versus B2C is probably a big piece of it. I also think that to use Wave, I haven't used it, but I've used Headliner, which I think is similar, right, to to make audiograms. Mm -hmm. It's just low barrier to entry. You log in, you upload an image, you upload audio, click, hey, I have a thing. Like, that's it. But to implement Churnkey, I need to be committed to it. I need to put some JavaScript, you know, widget in my, like I need to, there's just a bigger decision even if it wasn't B2B, B2C. So I feel like it's both of those things probably coupled.
1: Yeah, it's usually more than one person. Like you've got a founder or some decision maker and then an engineer. And sometimes there's a disconnect there. It's just really like, realizing our process has to be a much more formalized wave. We had a, I mean, there was no sales cycle. It was just like inbound free account upgrade. This is, um, eh, probably like, I don't know. We, we've had some customers, like we'll do a demo. And then at the end of the demo, they're like, all right, I'm installed. I'm all good. We're like, what you, why did, why were we even demoing? If you were that interested, it's easy to install, but, when somebody has a lot of other things going on, it can get pushed back and pushed back. So that's part of the reason we hired a head of sales was to um, find somebody who's really experienced with managing a pipeline and across a a longer sales cycle and handling all the follow-ups. I mean, it's it's a lot different when you're trying to scale B2B versus B2C. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you, you guys have been at it for about a year now. I mean, I know you were building Cherokee before that, but if you launched in February, it's almost February 22. So any like key learnings or anything you want to share with folks that maybe were unexpected for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been just about a year. And I think it was like that first quarter of 2021 was kind of a wash because we were so busy with the wave transaction. Never underestimate how time-consuming a sale can be. So we were just like, we really just started, uh, got rolling in March. And I think the, the biggest thing is just learning to be more patient When it comes to closing deals and onboarding customers, we expected things to just take off like a rocket ship right out the gate. And that was unrealistic. And it was based on our expectations from Starting Wave and some other businesses that were more B2C. This one is, it's really more about, you have to be better organized for B2B, I feel like. I think that's something that we had to learn as we went this time is we've got to get organized. We've got to actually track our customers better and get HubSpot and, do the B2B stuff that's not as sexy or glamorous. But the thing that I'm getting excited about is, you know, we'll close one or two customers in a month. And if somebody had told me last, you know, March, like, okay, you close two customers, you're going to close two customers in August, I would have said, wow, what a failure. But the revenue from those two deals was enough to be more than enough to, you know, cover things. So you tend to underestimate deal value when you're so used to volume. I think that's maybe a big learning is getting used to lower volume and more hanging in the balance and then also learning to fill up the funnel and relentlessly pursue deals, which we have not done a great job with and we're working on improving that so that we're top of mind and able to, a lot of people are interested, so many people want to work on their churn and we just have to keep reminding them so that we find that time to, to get it implemented.
0: Yeah, I think you've called out the the big differences between low touch and high touch funnels. It's like you know, lower no touch is like I need a lot of volume and I am optimizing, I'm probably split testing, I'm everything's automated, everything's a video, everything's a I don't have ties ten bucks a month, I cannot do demos, right? And then the moment you switch mentally to high touch, it's like it's different. And if you haven't done it before, you have to learn that. And whether you learn it from listening to this podcast or from Steli Efti's Microcom Talks or whatever, or whether you learn it firsthand, which it sounds like you know a lot of what, what you did, it can be a shock and a mental, it's a lot of little mental switches that need to to flip to get used to it.
1: Yeah, motivation's a big one. Like it can be very demoralizing when you know, a week goes by, it's like, oh, we didn't have any demos this week. And um, you've got to look at the big picture and really pace yourself. I think that's another key that I've realized with, with this business is... Um, In B2B, you have to be more careful to pace yourself because you don't have as many quick wins. So it's helpful to set goals and milestones that help you understand that you're making progress and learning, even if you're not hitting the volume that you're used to.
0: Well, as we wrap up, I had one question for you about your decision to join Tiny Seed. Because you're in the you know current batch of Tiny Seed, and it doesn't sound to me, based on your prior exit, that you needed much money from Tiny Seed to grow the business. Money's money's always great, of course. We can grow faster, we can have less risk. But am I right in that assumption? And if so, what was the impetus?
1: Yeah, you're correct. I mean, we didn't need; we were self-funding Churnkey, and we were comfortable to do it for a while longer. We realized we had some knowledge deficits on the team it was hard to admit that we just had this big exit and like, you know, it was all over social media. And like, we went on these like founder talks and it's demoralizing when you're like, okay, but we've got this new business and we feel like we don't know what we're doing again. <laughs> like we're, we're back at square one. And it's also funny because, um, we kind of snubbed our nose. We were like, Oh, like, we're not going to do an accelerator last year. We were, we were like somebody like first topic, like you guys should do tiny seed. And it's like, I mean, Rob's cool, like I listen to his podcast and it seems great, but maybe it's not for us. And really that's based on a bad perception we had about like the idea of an accelerator, like the traditional like regional accelerator, which we'd had a bad experience in a previous business with one of those that it just just didn't push the needle for us. So anyway, we, we talked to a lot of founders. We heard great things about TinySeed. We recognized that TinySeed specializes in B2B SaaS and that's what we needed. And we looked at the mentor list and we saw like, okay, we've got some like some current customers that are on this tiny seed mentor list. Like let's, you know, talk to them. And the more we talked, the more we dug in, we were like, wow, this seems like it would be a great, a great fit. And it would fill this gap that we have where it's also helpful to have accountability too. I think that's something I didn't realize we needed because we're all pretty goal-driven and we're hard workers, but there's something about a program like tiny seed that forces you to get organized and to, um, to set milestones with more rigor. I think that was another benefit, but uh, yeah, overall, like I would say the whole team has been blown away by how helpful it's been. The money was, the money's nice because it's, it helps to offset your own personal risk a little bit and helps us to get more aggressive with a hire that we felt we needed. But the, the biggest thing is everything that comes with that, the masterminds with the other founders. And, you know, it's funny too, like I've got two little kids and we found out that you guys were doing the conference in Scottsdale, like right after or the retreat in Scottsdale, right after the batch closed. And it was so hard because I was like, oh, man, like, you know, we've it's only like eight weeks out. I don't know if we can do this. The rest of the team couldn't. I was like, dang, we just got this money from I got to go out there and represent the team. And I was so charged up after coming out there and then going back because I'd never talked to that quantity of B2B SaaS founders that are going through the exact same thing. And I was like, I, I talked to our team right when I got back. I said, hey, we're not doing badly at all. Like, we we just need to change our expectations and get a little bit more, uh, as you said, tactical about the way we're making certain decisions.
0: Well, awesome. I mean, thanks. I, I never asked that question intending it to be a big tiny seed <laughs> ad, but it, it often turns into that. And I, I have to, as someone who like grew up his whole life, you know, not taking compliments. Well, basically like, Oh, like I, I, I realized that at my core, you know what I believe that I would not be working on tiny seed if I didn't believe it was the best out there for B2B SaaS. Cause I don't do things half ass and I don't, I don't finish second. So, I think all of us, a lot of us founders, are are not only competitive, but like we take pride in what we're building. And so, when I hear you talk about Tiny Seed like that, I think to myself, "Awesome! That's exactly what we envisioned." And I'm glad that's how
1: it's coming to reality for you. It's amazing that it's only been around for what three years, three four years, three years. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, and and the the companies that are coming through it, it's just like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been phenomenal. I, th- I think that's one of the benefits too that we underestimated was the value of the cohort like being brought on as a cohort rather than like, a, I know some people do like the rolling program and you can kind of like reach out, but nobody wants structure right now. Everybody wants to go async. And I mean, it, async's nice. Uh, that's our default, but there is something that's really great about having a structure in place that forces you into these conversations. And you have these collisions with other founders where you realize like, this is something that they're doing that I should try. And, you know, in Scottsdale, everybody was like, what are you guys doing? You need to hire a head of sales. No. So we did it. And it's already going well. So um, I can talk a, a long time about it. Maybe uh, maybe we'll talk again in like a year or two and uh, I can give the full full debrief. Indeed, once you're an alum.
0: Yeah, that, that's definitely, Anar and I spent a lot of time in the early days thinking about the batch approach, you know, because it would be easier. It would be less expensive. It would be simpler to do it all async and not do batches. But we just believe too much in that approach and, and the value we think it brings to founders. So with that, we're going to wrap up. If folks want to see what you're working on ChurnKey.co. And you said you're not really on Twitter, right? So it doesn't make sense
1: to I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Okay. I mean, I, I don't post a lot. I'm more of a lurker. Um, <laughs> it's just Nick Fogle N I C K F O G L E. So, uh, and DMs are open. Like I have people occasionally that'll message me and ask, you know, helpful, ask for helpful advice or questions. So feel free to message me if you if you're starting a business or if you're running a business, you have any questions and I can offer value. I'll I'll try to do that. Awesome. Thanks again, Nick, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks
0: for having me. Thanks for joining me again this week. And every week. If you haven't subscribed, hit that subscribe button. And if we're not connected on Twitter, look me up. I'm at Rob Walling, And I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.